Turn with me once more to the letter of Jude. It's the second last book in your Bible. It's a short book, 25 verses. And quite honestly, when I was looking uh, for a book to preach through the summer, it had been a while since I'd studied Jude, and I'd forgotten how heavy it is. It's a heavy book, 25 verses, but every verse is profound and intense and confronts us, confronts our culture, uh, confronts the church. It's been a heavy study for me personally. And we come now to verses 17 through 23, where Jude begins now in light of uh, telling the church all that it would uh, be uh, dealing with, all the opposition it would have, how there would be internal strife, that there would be those who would who creep into the church unnoticed and pervert the grace of our Lord, that is, uh, change the gospel, deny Christ. Uh, this, these are, this is a heavy message, as you can tell. And after saying all this, now he's going to tell us what it is we need to do in light of these challenging days. And you'll notice I say, uh, speak in the present. Uh, this is a book written a couple thousand years ago almost, but it still is relevant today, isn't it? Uh, it's not something that's ever changed. It's a dynamic of the church uh, that will always be existent until Jesus comes back. That is uh, opposition and inward uh, heresies that arise, if you will, error that comes from within. And so now Jude turns his attention to helping us prepare for this and also to live in this. So let's start at verse 16 to tie in where we left off last week and then read through verse 23. Our focus will be verses 17 through 23. But hear now God's word, starting at verse 16 of the letter of Jude. These, those uh, false teachers, are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you, you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this message to us, your church. I pray that we would see what is true, but also what we are to do. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite hymns that has ever been penned by Samuel Stone in the mid-1800s, he writes, The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. And then he says this in the next verse, the third verse of the hymn. Elect from every nation, yet one or all the earth, her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth. One holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food, and to one hope she presses with every grace endued. And with a bit of realism for sure, the hymn writer then says, Though with a scornful wonder men see her sore oppressed, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed, yet saints their watch are keeping, their cry goes up, how long? And soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. 
stone, really in a time where the church was relatively strong, speaks of something that happens throughout the generations. That is, there's internal strife. There are divisions that happen within the body of Christ, and there's opposition from without. And he speaks of the struggle that will never end. The church is indeed victorious. The gates of hell will not prevail over Jesus' church. But it's a, real, a, a fact of reality that we will face opposition from within and from without. And he captures it beautifully in this hymn. But today, what does that mean for us? What will help us be effective witnesses for Christ? I'm going to assume you want to be an effective witness for Jesus Christ, your Savior. He's bought you with his own blood. You recognize that. And as a reaction to that or a response to that, you want to be a faithful witness. Well, how should you conduct yourself as a faithful witness? What ought you do? Jude tells us in challenging days like the ones we have today, it's a great time. It's a great opportunity for the church. It's easy to sometimes sound negative when you speak of all the things that are happening culturally. And they're negative things, let's be honest. And the church ought to be more active and more, uh, acting more like the salt and light it's called to be. But there's a side of me that just has this great optimism because it's an opportunity. Uh, against the darkness, the light shines so much more brightly. So we have a great, great opportunity in these days. So don't grow depressed when you turn on the news and see this or that thing happening, uh, all these dis- different uh, moral slides that we see. Yes, they can be depressing, and we should be active to try to fend that off. But also realize that those things, uh, those worldly things, those lead to despair. People are empty in times like this. They may be hooping and hollering on the videos. They may be uh, looking like they're happy or they're enjoying life. But underneath, uh, there's a huge vacuum in their lives. And the only people that have the answer for this is the church, Christ. And so it's a great time of opportunity in these challenging days. And I hope you're as excited about it as I am. What we have here in Jude are several things we can be doing, several activities we could be participating in that help us be effective witnesses against the backdrop of these, this strife, this division, these errors that creep in. Look with me at the text and we'll see six different things that is uh, given to us as an imperative, a command. He starts in verse 17 by telling us that we ought to heed the warnings about opposition. It's not as though we shouldn't expect it. Uh, the apostles have been telling us that this would be the case uh, from the very beginning. The church basically enjoyed about 20 years of relative peace and exponential growth. But then already by the time of Paul, uh, there were those who were creeping in and strife was beginning, external persecution. And look at verse 17, what the, the apostle says. But you must remember, you must remember, beloved, that as people of God, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Certainly there were some who were thinking to themselves, wait a minute, we became a Christian, child of the king. Should we not live like royalty? Why is it that people are not recognizing us? Why are they not seeing Jesus for the king that he is? Why is it that we are being persecuted? Why are these problems? Why are we not being kept pure like we had been for those miraculous first years of the church's life? The apostle knows this thought and the possibility that some would doubt, would even waver, and says, don't forget the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus. Verse 18, they said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. No, it's going to happen. Now, what predictions is he referring to? Let me just cite a few of those for you. Paul, in the book of Acts, early in the life of the church, not even 20 years after Jesus ascends into heaven, uh, Luke records what Paul says to those who he's just uh, ministered to by planting a church. In the book of Acts, chapter 20, I know that after my departure, Paul says, fierce wolves 
will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, Paul says, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Three years Paul labors in the ministry. And he warns them that as soon as I'm walking out, someone's going to be walking in or someone from within is going to show their true colors and there's going to be strife from within. Beware, he says. Don't be surprised. This warning that Jude gives and that Paul gives is so that when it happens, no one freaks out. They understand this is part of it. This is part of the struggle in this life before Christ comes back. Paul writes to a young pastor named Timothy, and he says this to Timothy. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Beware, it's going to happen. He says in the second letter to Timothy, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive. And he names all sorts of things that describe sinful, sensual, worldly people. Then in verse 5 of that same book in chapter 3, he says, Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. From among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. Very similar language, Paul to Timothy, that Jude has for us in his letter. Then John. So now we already have Luke writing what Paul said, Paul saying it. Now John, another apostle, saying, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. John, Paul, Luke. The apostles, their predictions, their forecast. And Peter says it as well. In Second Peter, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought, bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Now you know how it is. You warn your child about something, but they still look shocked when it happens. Uh, my son had his five-year-old birthday he had to get his shots and I am not in favor of telling him oh it won't hurt because they're gonna have to get another shot later and they learn very quickly even with little babies when nurses descend upon the babies and give them those shots the next time they come back even the youngest baby knows what's coming so tell them the truth tell them really what's gonna happen and I believe this passionately because I broke my leg pretty severely when I was in eighth grade in the years prior to it I remember people always giving me that uh, Oh, it'll be a quick prick, you know, when they give you the, 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 the shot. Or it won't hurt that much. And it always hurt. It always hurt that much. And so now here I am, 12, 13 years old. I know full well not to listen to anything they tell you before they do it because it's going to really hurt. And as I was laying on the table, the orthopedic guy comes in because he's going to set the bone. And the bone was messed up. Uh, it was uh, broken this way. And it was over an inch overlap between them. And they had to pull it out and pull it up. Yeah, I know that'll make you feel good in the morning. So when the guy got to me, he, was, he said, it won't hurt. I said, don't tell me it won't hurt. My left foot's two inches shorter than my right foot. I know it's going to hurt. He said, oh, it won't hurt, but the shot I'm going to give you right now, it's going to hurt. And he gave me uh, the biggest syringe. I mean, a horse would have been hurt by this syringe. And then put it into my ankle bone in order to numb my whole leg. 
He's right. The setting of the bone didn't hurt. But I, my mother, my faithful mother, who was standing by me, said, I can't stay. And she, you know, what a mother listening to their son. So she leaves the room while they give me this shot. And I remember that shot like it was yesterday. Just be honest. Give a fair warning. And Jude does that for us. The apostles do that for us. They don't try to candy coat it. They don't try to tell you that you're going to have health and wealth and prosperity if you just trust Jesus. No, they say this is what's going to happen. It's a battle. They're going to creep in. Don't despair. The overall picture, the overall uh, victory is in the Lord's hands, but it's actually used of God to strengthen the church, to build the church, even its trials. Yes, it's going to hurt. But in the end, in the end, it will bear the victory. When? Look at verse 18. It says, in the last time there will be these things. Uh, Notice in the verses I mentioned, last time, last day, last hour, And interestingly, all the apostles speak in the present tense. They speak as though they are in the last times or the last days. And they were exactly right. From their perspective, what would happen at 70 AD was certainly catastrophic. It was uh, literally the wiping out of a nation and all that that was representative of that nation. So there is an immediate uh, sense in which things were fulfilled. When you read in the New Testament that the day of the Lord is coming and there is going to be the last time, the last hour, the last judgment... A lot of this is fulfilled in their immediate circumstances. But there's also a sense in the scriptures, and we have to be careful to interpret it this way, because it's the way the readers, uh, the writers meant it. That is, since Christ has ascended, we are in the last days. Uh, from the perspective of the prophets looking thousands of years ahead to Christ's coming, once Christ comes, then that rolls out what we call the last days. Now, how long that goes is anybody's, I want to say, guess, but essentially we don't know. But we know we're in the last days from the time of Christ's ascension. Now, days and weeks and hours and years, they don't mean to God what they mean to us. So 2,000 years or almost since Christ's ascension to us may seem like a long time, but it's certainly not to eternal God. But these are the last days. The fruition is Christ's coming and now his gathering of his church to himself. So the last times has always been applicable since the time Jude wrote this book. It had immediate applications in his day, in John's day, in Paul's day, in Luke's day. And it also has immediate application for us. Christ, his return is imminent. When that will be, we don't know. And if anyone tells you they do know, they're missing so much of what the scripture tells us is the essence of understanding the last times. That it could be any time. But he's working and doing things to bring them about, bringing them towards their fulfillment. Look at the rest of verse 18. In the last times there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Tell me an era and time where there have not existed scoffers who follow their ungodly passions. In verse 19, it is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. So these scoffers, these mockers, are driven by sensuality, not spirituality. They follow ungodly passions, that is, that which feels good, by the senses, that's what they pursue. It is these who cause divisions. Now, why would these people cause divisions? Well, if you're sensual rather than spiritual, that is seeking the experience with your senses, uh, then you're thinking temporally. You're thinking about only that which lasts for a lifetime. So you don't think eternally about what you do now having effect later. So you live life to what? Please yourself, essentially. So you're self-preserving and you're selfish. And as it says in Proverbs, at the root of all contention is pride. And so... If you're living for yourself and you're trying to live in community with anybody, how long before that causes great division? 
if any of us live for ourselves, if I live for myself, or you seek your own rights above everybody else's, how long can a community go? Think of a household as divided against itself. It's usually because everyone's taken up their own personal mantle. They're all self-preservationists. And as they rub against each other, the divisions become clearer and clearer because they're driven by their self and by their own pleasure, by what they're pursuing. So they're naturally divisive people uh, if they are only pursuing ungodly passions or sensuality. Worldly people, again, they love what's temporary. They can only see what's temporary. They have no forethought about what this will lead to. If I do this, it's going to lead to that. They don't think in those terms. They're thinking ground to today. Eat and drink today, for tomorrow we die. That's the mindset. But you know what sums it all up in the end of verse 18? They're devoid of the Spirit. And that's really it. All of us would be, we'd all be the same in that respect if we were devoid of the Spirit, unregenerate, spiritually dead, unable to really think of the things of God, devoid of the Spirit. So Jude warns us first, we need to heed the warnings of opposition have a realistic look at life to understand what it is we will deal with. So in light of this, what do we do? Look at verse 20. We see the first now response to all that Jude has been writing. This is our first response, you might say. The imperative, build yourself up in the faith. The first thing we ought to do, brothers and sisters, according to Jude, in light of all this that will come, all that is, is, all that is existing, is to build yourself up in the faith. Literally, but you, beloved people of God, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Now look back to verse 3 so we can remember what faith is referring to. Faith is not the thing we're exercising here, the verb usage of faith, where I have faith that this chair will hold me up, that kind of thing. It's the faith, meaning the noun usage, the faith. Well, what's the faith? Look at verse 3 in Jude. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. There's the word. There's the noun usage. Contend for, strive for, fight for, guard for, uh, stand up against opposition for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, by way of review, we now in verse 20 say, have us, uh, does the imperative, build yourself up in the most holy faith. Verse 3, contend for the faith. What is the faith? The faith we're speaking of is Christ. The record of the faith that is Christ is the scriptures. Who are the scriptures given to? The church. I hope you all remember this. So the faith, when you think of the faith, noun usage, think of Jesus Christ, the record of Jesus Christ, the Bible, and the people for whom Christ died and the Bible is given, the church. Jesus, the Bible, and the church. That's the way we think in terms of the faith. It's not just a simple uh, one-dimensional term. It's, it's multidimensional. It's complex. It's Christ, our accurate record of who Christ is, and the people for whom Christ died and gave his word, the church. So build yourself up in the faith using what says in verse 3, Jesus, the Bible, meaning the faith once for all delivered to the saints, the church, we are to contend for that, and we are to build ourselves up in that. I would just want to say that church ought to be more to you than just one of the many activities you have a choice in engaging in. You know, the, the ability to say, I participate in this rotary club, I do this, my children are in soccer and dance and so forth and so on, and we go to church on Sunday, and you name it as though 
It's, it's just one of the many activities that you participate in. And I know that it's so tempting today. It's so easy to pick other things or just add church to it because it's really in vogue, especially in this part of the country. You know, everyone has to go to church and you just have that little time carved out on a Sunday morning where you go to church. I hope church is more to you than that. If it's part of the faith and we're to build ourselves up in it, does it not make sense that it's through the church that you're going to have your faith built up? Where else is the scripture taught and preached and explained and then lived out among members of the same community? Where is Christ proclaimed on a regular basis? Where are the sacraments administered so that you can see visibly what it is that Christ has done for you? All these things are given to the church. The message of Christ is given to the church. And so if we're to build ourselves up in the faith, and the faith is Christ, the Bible, and the church, these things together, obviously all under the heading of Christ the Lord, does it not make sense that church is a whole lot more important than just showing up once a week on Sunday? It involves including ourselves in each other's lives. It means giving up something so that we can build that community. It means that we believe that God's going to make this community a beacon of light to the rest of the, the, the community around us and the culture around us. It's not meant to be a holy huddle at all. It's meant to build up the community in strength so that when people look for answers, there's a group equipped to give those answers and a group to take in those who need mercy. How will church involvement, it's not just about attending church, build you up in your most holy faith. Think of these things. We're called to worship as God's people. The church provides that outlet properly for you and your family to worship corporately. The word of God is taught, explained, preached, lived in the context of community. The sacraments administered. We come together to pray corporately every week. We have opportunities for fellowship with one another, to live out the truths of the faith. Through the church, we then can serve others. This is how we are built up in the faith. There's no lone ranger. It's not a person who's an island. It's in connection with the church. Really, when you're confronted with all the many activities that you're confronted with. And Sherry and I have only just begun. We have small children, so it's easy for me to tell you, you know, don't be involved with this activity and you have your kids in too many activities that take away from this. It's easy to be judgmental when you have, you know, young children and haven't been confronted with it. But we're starting to see how many possible choices we really have. It's amazing how young uh, we start our children in all these many activities, and we're already racing around getting them to getting them to all. All I ask you, take your personal situation and ask yourself, am I thinking eternally or temporally? Am I thinking in terms of things that have eternal significance or things that will come and go and no one will remember? Am I thinking in terms of building myself and my family up in the faith, or am I thinking about some immediate thing that will pass quickly? Ask those questions before you say yes to too much. How much of it is happening in the context of God's ordained institution, the church? How are you using your gifts to help the church with that? Those are important questions we have to ask ourselves and be driven by and make decisions according to. But what else does it tell us in the text? We're to build ourselves up in our most holy faith. But look at verse 20. Pray in the Holy Spirit. So build yourself up in the faith, which obviously is a complex statement that involves much and pray in the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 6, when we read about the full armor of God that we're supposed to put on, take on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication, to that end alert with all perseverance. And then Romans 8, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. 
And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. In all things, we're constantly checking in, if you will, with our Lord. It doesn't mean necessarily long marathon times of prayer. Uh, That can depress many people when they think, well, I'm just not going to start that kind of a discipline because I'll never be able to finish it or I'll quit. Listen, start much more simply than that. Check in with your Lord on a regular basis. I had a boss once, and we don't appreciate this in bosses, but I want you to think of the analogy, who was a micromanager. I mean, absolutely everything we did, we had to check with her before we did it. And I remember getting to the point where we were conditioned to just not even be able to think anymore without asking yes or no for every task it is we did. Now, you know in business that that is highly inefficient most of the time, that kind of work, uh, that kind of hierarchy and that kind of way of, of working. However, think in terms of God. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we didn't make any decision or we didn't do anything without checking with our Lord first? And I don't mean mystically saying to the Lord, Lord, give me a sign, I'll put out the fleece. No, just simply before you do everything, whatever it is, stop and give thanks, stop and ask for guidance, stop and ask for the Holy Spirit's wisdom in whatever it is that you're going to do. Make that a habit. Short prayers, just constantly checking with the Lord. Most of us have the discipline of praying before we eat. How about making that less a, less a prayer of ritual just to get through, and maybe not many words, but just a short, a short prayer for guidance at that point in the day. If you eat three times a day, that's three prayers right there. Just three times. Stop. Pause. Think of the sustenance he's giving you in this physical means. And think of all the ways he sustains you throughout the rest of your life. Just three times. Imagine if we would do that at every transition in the day. I don't mean stop and bow and pray. Talk to the Lord. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Only those who have the Spirit of God can pray in the Holy Spirit. Those who know Christ, only they have access to the throne of grace. And the Spirit of God gives us access to the the throne by applying Christ's work to us. Pray in the Holy Spirit. I kind of want to be like a child who when they go into the store for the first time, you know, when they're little, they see everything in the toy section and they want it all. They ask, they ask you constantly, Daddy, can I have this? Daddy, can we get this? Daddy, can we get But as they grow, they start to understand that that's not reasonable. You can't have everything. And they start to ask for things in accordance with what might be possible. They don't ask for everything. They start limiting what they ask for. And they realize that there's reasons why you can't have everything in the store. And as you grow, you come to understand that there's a time when the children will come and they don't ask you anymore because they know the answer. You can't have everything in the Walmart. It's impossible. But maybe at a special occasion, there might be a time to get this or to have this, or this might be a need. And you start to know what it is. And then there comes a time where they actually take them grocery shopping without even asking, just with a look, they can go and grab the thing off the shelf that they know their mother wants. That ought to be our progression in prayer. It's okay to start out asking for everything if you're young in the faith, but you'll learn as you pray, lifting your desires to God for those things agreeable to his will, that as you grow, your prayers become more pointed more in accordance to his will. And the prayers themselves actually have the effect in conjunction with your being built up in the faith to start asking for things that are agreeable to his will and your prayers actually begin to bring great glory to God because now you're aligning your will or he's aligning your will with his will through prayer. Build yourself up in the faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. But also look at verse 21. Keep yourself in the love of God. 
That means to abide in him, as it says in John 15. It's not referring to keep doing things to make God love you. Uh, Keep being acceptable before God. I hope you know that you have never been acceptable to God in your own righteousness. None of us have ever won ourselves over to God because we're attractive spiritually. Not a one of us. So it's not saying keep yourself in the love of God, like make him keep doing things so he loves you. That's not what it means. It's more like the sun is shining. Stay in the sunlight. That is the warmth that you'll feel from staying in the sunlight. If you've ever been in the cold weather, you look for a sunny spot and you stand in it and you keep staying in it and you stay in it. That's the point. You're secure in the love of Christ for you. It's clear from the first part of this book when it says that you are called, you are kept, you are loved. That's a done deal. But keep in the sunlight of that love. Keep in its effective range so that you feel it, that you know it's there. It holds you secure. And they all go together. Build up in the faith and pray. Those things together keep you in the sunlight of God's love. But think in terms of just all the different opportunities you have to be in touch with the Lord through service, uh, through being with his people. The sacraments, there's a sense in which one of my greatest joys about a regular uh, celebration of the Lord's Supper is there's this tangible means, this tangible statement of his love regularly. Now, maybe you don't need a reminder once a week. I need one every couple minutes. So at least once a week, we have the opportunity physically anyways, according to his institution, the sacrament, to be reminded of his love. That when we come to the table, it's not based on our merit. He does not love us because of anything we've done. He loves us because of what his son has done, and that table represents what he's done. We stay in his love by constant reminders of our security in him because of the perfection of his completed work for us. Keeping in his word, keeping with his people, participating in his sacraments. But also, we are to look for Christ's return. Look at verse 21. We're waiting, in essence, waiting. All, do all these things while waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So we do these things with a constant mind towards Christ's return. Now, I don't like to make this statement. I hear people say it. Uh, I'm looking up. I'm saying, don't look up. If you're looking up, you're going to get hit by something below. Look up around knowing that Christ is either you're going to him first or he's going to come and get you, whichever one happens. But you're secure in him, and he's coming. He's definitely coming for you personally when you, when you die and go to be with him or for his church when he comes ultimately. But it is always a reality in the life of the believer that we ought to be living, waiting for Christ's return, living for his presence, knowing that he is with us. In fact, when you really start analyzing it, What's helped me, even when I was a child, is I feel alone. Who's always with you? God is always with me. Jesus is always with me. That's profound. He really is always with you. He really is. The Spirit indwells you, and the presence of God is always real to the believer. Look for his return, waiting for the mercy of our Lord. Did you notice that? The mercy of our Lord? What do you usually associate with Christ's return? Judgment, usually. In fact, most of the passages weigh heavily on Woe to him on the day of his return, or be better that you were not born, that you be found unprepared when Jesus returns. And the vast majority of the passages are given as a warning to draw those who are not living in him, to draw them to himself. But there are a couple occasions, and this is one of them, where it's a comfort to the believer to know that Christ is coming. The mercy of Christ when he comes back. Well, what do you mean? I've already experienced the mercy. No, the ultimate mercy will happen when you are made complete in Christ. It's a wonderful thing now to be forgiven, and there's a great mercy there. But ultimately, it won't the full effect of that mercy you will not experience until glory. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus. 
that leads to eternal life. All things will be set right. Knowing who wins in the end really gives us great confidence and perseverance. Uh, I love those stories where I know the outcome. For instance, if you've seen the miracle movie about the 1980 Olympic team, that was one of the great highlights of my young little life when I was about eight years old, when they won, nine years old when they won that. I was a great hockey fan. Grew up in uh, western New York where hockey was the, probably the predominant sport played since time I was a little child. And I remember watching it. I was sick the day that they actually uh, won that game, uh, the game against the Russians, which was in the afternoon. And it was amazing because my mother, who didn't care much about hockey, would call every few minutes from work to ask who was winning. It was just real excitement in the western New York area. I know around here it probably wasn't as well known. Shame on all of you. But at any rate, in 1980, it truly was one of the greatest events that has ever happened when you think of uh, what, really the upset and the nature of it and so forth. But what I really liked about the movie, in, uh, for all that Hollywood does, is that the whole time you just know what's going to happen, and so you're just pumped. You just can't wait, and you're just seeing how they capture every moment of history that you watched, that you lived, that you saw, the stories you heard about what they said to each other. And you're watching, and even though they get humiliated in this one game before, just days before the Olympics, they play the Russian team and they get slaughtered by them. And one would normally, I remember what I thought in those days, they're going to make fools of themselves when they get to the Olympics. That's what we all thought at that time. They're going to get just killed by this team. If not Sweden and some of these other teams that also had professional level players playing on the teams, all the Soviet bloc nations. But in watching the movie, I sat there with just this great excitement. I couldn't wait to start yelling USA. Why? Because I knew who was going to win. I knew who was going to win. Now, why is we, why is Christians moping? Why would we mope in this day? We know who wins, and we know who, what side we're on. Really, we should be looking with great anticipation for when that day comes. We should live with that kind of confidence, knowing that the victory will be eternal, not just a simple little time an epoch in time, but one that's eternal. Look for Christ's return. Live in light of it. But also we're to practice mercy. Look at verse 23 and verse 20, 22 and 23. Remember, there have been those now who have been victimized by these false teachers. No doubt within the congregation, there are those who are wavering. In fact, you get that, in, that idea here in verse 22. They're doing all these things and have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy on those who doubt. I take this to mean that there are probably those led astray, they've heard mixed messages, and that causes honest doubts. Don't jump all over them is what it's saying. If they don't have all their theological uh, I's dotted and T's crossed, don't jump all over them. They're at this place where they've got received mixed messages. And so give them a break. Give them mercy. Help them gently come along. Don't leave them there, but don't jump all over them either. But also there's another aspect. Save others in verse 23 by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by flesh. There are some that are just literally teetering towards destruction. Make a judgment and run after those. Some you'll have to get in the face of. Some you have to gently bring along. But recognize that mercy is what is always at the root of it. To see them saved. So make a judgment. It's a pastoral judgment that we all make. A shepherd's judgment. Do you go at? Are they, te- they going to fall off? Or is this person just in a state of wavering? We need to help them. We need to gently try to lift them up. But practice mercy at all times. This picture given in the last part of verse 23, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained with flesh. This is the idea that 
the sin. We should always be hating all the sin, all those things that affront God, all the while trying to do our best to preserve the person who's created in the image of God. In fact, the, this illustration, I think this is referring to something that's very biblical in its picture. Uh, you are aware of leprosy being such, an, such a, a rampant disease in those days. At least it was one that had such a stigma to it. They weren't really sure what caused it. But what was amazing is uh, when people, lepers in leper colonies would be wearing garments. And one of the things that would happen for those who would show mercy is that they would take those garments and they would burn them at times because those garments represented uh, the disease that was all about those people. And it was a sad thing that they viewed the people in the garments very similarly. Well, Jesus doesn't look at us that way, praise God. He looks at us as people who are stained with sin, for sure. But when he rescues us, that garment is taken off us and burned. The garment still has the stains of the flesh and that it still reminds us of the life we've come from, who we were. But we are saved from it and separated from it. Well, there are people that are in stages of life. It's hard. We can't judge. We don't know their hearts. But we're to work to preserve those people while at the same time maintaining a clear and obvious description of what the garment of sin is. In other words, call sin sin. At the same time, call people to Christ. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained with flesh. One commentator says, while it is the duty of the Christian to pity and pray for the sinner, he must view with loathing all that bears the traces of sin. You know, we live in a day which uh, much of what calls itself the church is theologically and doctrinally anemic. So it, is, it stands to reason that we have a lot of people that are wavering in their faith. They're wavering. They're doubters. I would just entreat us, especially as the Lord would bring those people to us and even those among us, that we'd be extremely patient with those, that we'd be merciful with those. They're getting all sorts of messages. If you listen to the radio for any amount of time, what's called Christian radio, uh, you could get two diametrically opposed theological messages by listening to two sermons back to back. You'll see this. In fact, when we put our broadcast on, it'll be interesting, and I'll let you look at where it'll be placed. There'll be different messages to some degree. I'm not saying we've got the message. That's not at all what I'm trying to say. I am saying that God will bring people to us that are doubting. They're struggling. They, let's not jump all over them. Let's welcome them and be able to patiently, in mercy, see them come into our midst and welcome them into our midst. At the same time, we have to be vigilant. We see someone teetering towards the edge. If you love them, run after them. Snatch them from the fire, so to speak. Yes, the Spirit of God ultimately is who does the work, but we are to be active in pursuit of those who seem to be teetering. So we have for us six different ways in which we are effective witnesses in the midst in these days of apostasy. I would just leave you with this hopefully inspiring picture. Growing up, uh, the, what I watched all the time, uh, my father was a huge boxing fan. And I understand that in recent days, boxing has become kind of a circus, and I haven't really paid much attention since the early 80s. But in the, in the old days, when my dad was growing up, and he grew up in the late 40s as a teenager, uh, the greatest fighter of his day, in fact, I think, of all time, is Rocky Marciano, as you can imagine. Uh, that was a day when Tommy DiGiorgio, Phil Moscata, Carmine Vingo, Roland uh, Lastarza, and Gino Bovino, those were the boxers of the day, so you know why my dad liked it so well. And we had videotapes, and we'd watch all these old boxing matches from the 40s and the 50s. It's not like what you see today. There was just a great amount of skill and uh, athleticism and sportsmanship that went into those days and the way that they fought and the way they, sort of like the way the Greeks wrestled is the way boxing used to be in those days. And so for, between 1947 and 1955, Rocky Marciano 
And Rocky was his given name. It was Rocco, but they called him Rocky. It's not just a nickname. Uh, in about an eight-year period, he won 49 fights. He never once lost a fight. He's the only, he's the only uh, champion who never he, he got the sense to quit when it was time, and he was 49-0 and 0 when he quit. Forty-three of those were by knockout. Now, what we liked to do about growing up, not all, the, all of those fights are on video, but we saw about 24 of them growing up. My dad watched them constantly. In fact, when I was home last time, I joked and showed Sherry one of the tapes. This is a Rocky Marciano tape. Out of those fights that you'd watch, it was always after the fifth or sixth round when Rocky actually would win. What he'd do is it almost like he put his arms down by his side and guard himself for like five rounds until that person just slugged themselves out and their arms started coming down. They're punching and they're punching, and he would just take the beating. He'd take the beating. He'd take the beating. Slowly, his opponent would get tired of punching, and his arms would start to waver just a little bit, and just the right time, Rocky would hit him with the right cross and knock him out. He did it 43 times out of 49 fights. Out of those 43 fights, 29 of them were after the fifth round. And he was losing on the scorecard in the vast majority of those going into the fifth or sixth round. That's the church. You may feel like we're getting pounded at times. You may feel like we're going to get knocked out. What's going on? The right cross is going to come. The church will be victorious. In the meantime, we're given clear instruction as to how we're to gird ourselves up, how we're supposed to live. But don't ever doubt who's going to win this. Don't ever doubt what influence it's going to have. And I don't happen to believe that it's all going to get worse and that he's going to come back and make, I think he's going to make it better now. I think he's actually going to use the church in a way, in a genuinely victorious way. And it may not be in our day exactly, but it will come. And the church will be victorious. And that same hymn that I began with. Let me close with these two verses from it. Though with a scornful wonder men see her sore oppressed by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed. Yet saints their watch are keeping, their cry goes up how long? And soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. But then listen to what Long writes now. The church shall never perish, her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish, is with her to the end. Though there be those that hate her and false sons in her pale, against or foe or traitor, she ever shall prevail. Jude's given us good insight in how that prevailing will happen. Let us pray.